You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 499 of this podcast. Today is November 13th, 2022, also a Sunday. And in this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about some things that are brought up in the Joe Rogan Experience, episode 1895, with Matt Walsh. And I want to start off this episode actually reading a bit of Proverbs from the Old Testament. Proverbs 30, verses 17 through 19. This is in a section titled or uh, with a heading, The Words of Agur, the Words of Agur, son of Jaka, the Oracle. It reads in these three verses in particular as follows The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Now, this is an interesting, poetic, metaphorical, symbolic statement. Also, just at face value, you can look at this and you can say, yeah, those are pretty wonderful things, actually. There is something dynamic. There is a certain quality to each of these things that are listed, each of these three things and four things. Three are too wonderful. Four, I don't understand. And that's a curious deal, right? Why is it not four that are too wonderful and I don't understand them? Why is it three things that are too wonderful and four I don't understand? Which three (laughs) are out of the four uh, too wonderful and which one is... uh, not too wonderful. It's I don't understand it, but it's not too wonderful. Well, that's part of the riddle, perhaps, that you have an eagle in the sky, a serpent on a rock, a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Which of these things? You pick, right? It's almost like that game, which uh, half of a coconut is the pea under, right? Which one of these four is not too wonderful, but I don't understand it. I'll leave that for you to ponder, and uh, I'll ponder it as well because I don't, <laughs> I don't know actually. But it is interesting. This proverb in particular comes to mind, where it relates to questions of gender and sexuality and marriage, and procreation and having children and gender identity, and all of these things are talked about at great length. Uh, in a long-form interview, since that's what typically the Joe Rogan uh, experience is, this long-form interview between Joe Rogan and Matt Walsh, where they're just sitting in the studio talking back and forth about what is woman and also, really, what is marriage, right? What is marriage and what is a woman and what is a man? And actually, all three of these questions are bound up together. It's really impossible to get at, for instance, the question of what is a marriage without first defining what a woman is and what a man is. And I found that to be the case as I have been writing this book on marriage and this is why we got married. I find before I can talk about marriage, I've really got to deal with what is a man and what is a woman and how are they different? How are they not just interchangeable and you know, mix and match however you please. You could have two women, you could have two men, you could have a man and a woman, you could have any of these possible combinations. You could have two people who are androgynous. And why even call either of them a man or a woman? Why not just say person? It's two people. Now that's the definition in our day, but it wasn't always so. And actually for the vast majority of human history, Human civilization, in order to not be sterile and just die out abruptly, has had to embrace the definition of marriage that actually results in the production of children. I was talking about this with my friends Roy 
Garcia and J.P. Chavez yesterday morning over breakfast. We went to a Mexican restaurant here in Greeley slash Evans and had some menudo, and that was a first for me. It wasn't my favorite, I'll be honest. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to flatter anyone uh, lest my maker would do away with me. I didn't love it. <laughs> I didn't. It was the texture. It was the look of it. I just, I, I've never eaten anything that quite looks like that. And my brain just didn't know quite what to do with it. And uh, yeah, uh, at the risk of going from not flattering to being offensive, I'll say no more about it for the moment. But I did enjoy, I thoroughly enjoyed getting together with Roy and JP having breakfast, having a cup of coffee, which I did finish, and uh, discussing theology, philosophy, politics, you know, the, the questions of what is it uh, that we are men, and what is a woman, and what is marriage, and which political party, uh, you know, resonates with Hispanics and why. And one of the curious things that came up as we were talking about the election this past week and how it went, and also how Hispanics vote. I, I could swear I was probably the only white guy, the only non-native uh, Hispanic in the room. I'm an honorary Hispanic, but I'm I'm not uh, actually native-born Hispanic. Um, but <laughs> I asked the question, why, right? Why do Hispanics vote for Democrats? Both JP and Roy had some interesting things to say as far as the values and the priorities and the beliefs and the convictions and the culture of Hispanic Americans, where it relates to a man being a man, a woman being a woman. What is the point of marriage? How do we feel about children? How do we feel about gender and the current craziness? Hispanic Americans are very traditional when it comes to all of these questions. And that puts them at odds with the Democrat Party, which has increasingly decided to, if you will, give a kind of lip service to the traditional support for immigration that Hispanic Americans have uh, appreciated. And that's drawn them to the Democrat Party and it has repulsed them from the Republican Party. Their lip service now is just to leave the door open, right, to demand that we have open borders, essentially, for all intents and purposes. We've got a story here from Hank Berrien at the Daily Wire from just a couple of days ago. Biden Homeland Security Chief to Border Patrol Commissioner resign. And this all has to do with the uh, Border Patrol Commissioner wanting to meet with the chiefs on the, the border to find out what's going on, what's the current status, what are you guys running into, what do you need from us? Well, Mayorkas doesn't like that, and he told him not to do it. And the uh, uh, Border Patrol commissioner went anyways and did it anyways. And so Mayorkas is furious and tells him, you can either resign or you can be fired. Take your pick. And there's a defiant response of, um, no, I'm not quitting. I'm committed to doing this job. I moved my family to Washington, D.C. to do this job. I'm trying to do my job here. But that's the thing, right? Alejandro Mayorkas, Homeland Security Secretary, does not want him to do his job. And so that's where Democrats get a lot of votes from Hispanic Americans is where Hispanic Americans want to come to the United States of America. There's opportunity here. There's more security here, or at least there has been. I think that's less and less the case, not because of illegal immigration, first and foremost, but because of a lawless uh, mindset and attitude from the Democrat Party. Anything goes except for telling somebody knows. Uh, but where the Democrat Party is losing Hispanics is, for instance, a prominent example, which both JP and Roy were telling me uh, they don't know <laughs> they don't know anybody in their friends or family uh, who is, is on board with this or likes it. It's just a, a it's a joke and a byword to them. There's this term, Latinx. And what Latinx is supposed to be from the progressives, from the left, besides uh, you know being a, an effort at colonization of Hispanic culture and Hispanic language, really, it, it's a 
supposedly gender inclusive uh, alternative to saying Latino, Latina. See, Spanish is very gendered uh, in its uh, language for everything. It is a very gendered language. So when you have an ah at the end of a word or a term, it is feminine. And when you have an O at the end, like Latino, that is masculine. So a Latino is uh, a man or a male uh, Hispanic. And if you have a Latina, that is a feminine, right? That is a feminine. That's a woman. That's a female. That's a girl. But to use this term Latinx or Latinx is basically to say, solve for X. You figure it out. It's all the same. Instead of using gendered pronouns, we're going to use uh, gender neutral pronouns because that's inclusive. But the problem is actually, and this is <laughs> not news to me, and it's not news to Hispanic Americans. The trouble is you're not just including some people by saying Latinx or Latinx. You're also excluding those who say, no, I like my language just the way that it is. Thank you very much. Call me a Latino call my wife a Latina, when we're together and you're talking about a mixed group, we're going to give the preeminence to the men. The men represent their households and their families and their community and their country and their culture. First and foremost, they're leading in that regard, which is the created order that we find in God's word. We're going to say Latinos. And, well, <laughs> if you start messing with that and you say Latinx, you are excluding traditionalist, conservative uh, Hispanics, which actually is the majority. And so their positions on these things with regards to gendered language, with regards to gender roles, uh, actually what's expected of a male of the species versus a female of the species, they're very committed to those things. And the Democrat Party is losing them. And the only thing that might keep Hispanics voting is, I'm told, that their parents voted Democrat, that they have a long memory with regards to attitudes towards immigration, and that at the end of the day, they just need to provide for their families, right? Whatever the party is doing, whatever the country is doing, well, that's not my concern. I'm just going to vote for whoever's going to make it possible or feasible for me to provide for my family, put food on the table, put a roof over our heads, put clothes on our backs, get my kids a good education, and uh, and in a reasonably safe place. Now, as crime goes up, as Democrats are increasingly lawless, as the economy is crashing more and more with Democrats in charge, you're going to see that support for Democrats among Hispanics go down because their priority is, as fathers, to provide and protect. That's their role. And that's a God-given role. Actually, they're quite correct. That is a very much more uh, God-honoring, God-fearing attitude to have. And it does matter that it is a cultural value. It does matter that this is reinforced. It's taught to children from little on up. Like Roy was telling me, he remembers as a kid having a little bike crash and falling and scraping his knee and coming in crying and his mom being very stern with him. It's not just the fathers with the supposed uh, toxic masculinity and all that. His mother as well says, oh, you're not a baby, right? You need to man up, right? Don't cry. Don't show any pain. You just brush it off and get back to playing because you're a boy and you need to grow up to be a man someday. And that's what's expected of you. And both JP and Roy told me, if you're a little girl, though, if you're <laughs> Roy's sister or something, and you have the exact same experience, you have the bike crash, you fall and scrape your knee, you come in crying, the whole household is going to come to a stop and focus on trying to comfort you because... There's a whole different set of expectations for little girls who are going to grow up to be women someday that they should be soft and feminine and nurturing, right? So you're going to model that. You're going to reinforce that from a little age on up. And the whole community is going to do that. The whole culture is going to do that in the case of Hispanic Americans. So it matters very, very much. But I think you notice when you look at Hispanic Americans with regards to gender I think you notice a, a kind of uh, seed vault, if you will, 
that might actually make conservatives more conservative if we take some cues from Hispanic Americans. I, I really do think it could make the Republican Party, for instance, more conservative if more and more Hispanics come into the Republican Party and start voting Republican as the economy gets worse, as security concerns increase. I think Hispanic Americans, Latino Americans, and Latina Americans, voting Republican will make the Republican Party more firm. It'll shore us up when it comes to questions of gender and sexuality and the rearing of children and the abortion question. Hispanics are for men being men and women being women and celebrating when a baby is born to the family. It is absolutely the center of attention anytime a child is born that is celebrated. It's affirmed. It is generously responded to by the larger family and the larger community. And we need that, right? We, we really do need that. It's not just a question. I think too many who think about these things in purely economic terms look at the birth rate declining in the West, in Europe, and here in the U.S. In the West, the birth rate is declining, and we are not even at replacement levels. It's never been lower than it is right now in the United States of America, and Europe is dying. And the only thing that offsets that in the case of Europe is importation of largely Muslim population uh, migrants from the Middle East, from North Africa, from you know uh, Asia, basically, is what they will say in uh, the UK. They'll say Asiatics instead of saying Muslims. But it, it really is uh, Muslims who... Also, similar to Hispanic Americans, plays a high value on fidelity in marriage and having children. And the whole community, the whole culture celebrates and affirms that and reinforces that and supports it at more to the point. So what do they get? They get more of what it is that they're affirming and celebrating and insisting on and cultivating, right? Meanwhile, we are likewise getting more of what we are encouraging and more of what we are rewarding. We're getting less of what we stigmatize, less of what we punish, less of what we criticize, less of what we uh, punish, if you will. But you have this proverb. I want to go back to this proverb. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. That's really, really harsh language. That's a really stark picture. That's not at all mysterious. This is a cautionary tale. You need to respect your father and your mother. And even there, when it comes to Hispanic Americans voting Democrat, I hadn't even thought of it in those terms, but the idea that a kind of filial piety drives multi-generational voting for Democrats, uh, you know, I, I think it's tragic. I think it's sad because they're actually voting against not only their own interests and, and their you know, future generations' prosperity, but they're voting against you know, the, the entirety of America's long-term interests, holistic interests to vote Democrat. But at the same time, that filial piety, that respect for their mothers and their fathers, that deference to their mothers and their fathers, I think is generally a good thing. It's a wise thing. It's a wholesome thing. And it's that right there that we need more of, although we definitely don't need more voting for Democrats. But then you continue on with the three things that are too wonderful for I don't understand. And an eagle in the sky, majestic, soaring, effortless, powerful. If it swoops down on some creature with these sharp, sharp talons and this razor sharp beak, it's going to have its way. It's going to crush some little rabbit or scoop some little fish out of the water. That is too wonderful. And I don't understand an eagle. It's so other than what I am. I am not an eagle in the sky. I don't have eagle powers. I don't think I ate uh, quite enough of the menudo, uh, but I, I do feel like uh, there, there might be some more testosterone uh, coursing through my veins this morning, having eaten the menudo. The way of a serpent on a rock. What is a serpent doing on a rock? It's sunning itself, right? It's getting warm. And even though, especially in the case of venomous serpents, it, it's a very dangerous creature if you keep your distance, 
you don't bother it. It's not going to bother you. I don't like snakes. I hate snakes. But there is something too wonderful, possibly, maybe, and something just mysterious and hard to understand about a serpent sunning itself on a rock and not bothering anybody. It could. It could bite you. You could die <laughs> if it's venomous. But if you don't get close to it, it's not going to come chasing you down, probably. Odds are high that it'll leave you alone if you leave it alone. A ship on the high seas, how does it stay afloat? How does it get from point A to point B with the sails and the rudder or the oars or the motor or whatever it is that you're using to power this thing through the water in the direction you want to go? How do you navigate on the high seas? It's mysterious. It's too wonderful. I don't understand how that works, but I have a lot of respect for men who do. Then we come to the way of a man with a virgin, right? And what's this talking about, right? A man with a virgin, this is... Uh, presumably (laughs) a suitor and uh, a potential suited. This is potentially a future husband and wife, but this is the courting phase, right? This is the, do I like you? Do you like me? I'm a good man. You're a good woman. Let's uh, see if we can make an arrangement and, and get married and be a good couple for the rest of our lives. The way of a man with a virgin, there is something particular about it which, uh, you know, actually, it could be <laughs> compared to an eagle soaring in the sky uh, or a serpent on a rock or a ship on the high seas. These things may be analogous to one another. <laughs> Sometimes the dynamic between a man and uh, a virgin, uh, an unmarried you know, young woman, Sometimes it is similar to an eagle soaring in the sky. Sometimes it's similar to a serpent sunning itself on a rock. Sometimes it's similar to trying to navigate on the high seas and it's trial and error and it's dangerous and treacherous and, and uh, who knows really how these things work when they do work out when you get from point A to point B. But I look at this and I think to myself, there's a profound grace and humility to admitting these are too wonderful and I don't understand them, right? 75% of these things here are too wonderful And 100% of these things that I'm about to list, I don't understand, but they're great, right? They're wonderful, they're majestic, they're great, they're awe-inspiring, but I don't understand them. I don't get it, but I don't need to in some sense, right? In some sense, that's what's being communicated is I don't need to fully understand how this works to know that it works, to know that this is a part of life. It's a great and glorious part of life by God's design. Well, that brings us again to the Joe Rogan Experience, episode 1895 with Matt Walsh. And one of the things, and I'm slowly making my way through, I've been listening to this off and on for the past several days since uh, JP was telling me about it, wanting to know what I thought on it. I'm struck by something I was hearing Matt Walsh describe in the, the bit that I was listening to this morning, where he was talking about his path to becoming a conservative commentator. For those of you who don't know, Matt Walsh and I are the same age. And I actually looked at his success with blogging back when my cousins and I started blogging at On The Rocks, On The Dot Rocks. I looked at Matt Walsh's success and I thought, boy, howdy, that's the ticket. That's the goal, right? That's the brass ring is to get successful on that level, to have that kind of an audience. And he talks about, interestingly enough, all the same dynamics that we ran into as we were trying to get off the ground in 2016 and on, uh, all of those reducing even his ability to reach the audience that he had built up online. You know, Facebook basically limited how many of the people who like and follow your Facebook page, uh, how many of them are actually going to see any of the content that you put out, unless you pay, right? You build up this following, you build up these people who you know, want to see your content. And then at, at a certain point, go figure 2016, when politics was going the direction progressives didn't want it to go, globalists didn't want it to go. All of a sudden, Facebook flips a switch and says, if you want to actually reach your audience, you have to make us rich, which of course, you know what they're going to do with all that riches. They're going to spend it on advancing the progressive cause still further, which, you know, it's like, Boy, that's a losing proposition. If I am, you know, trying to reach my audience to get a more conservative outcome, uh, 
And then you're just going to take the money I pay you and fuel uh, the opposite effect. But Matt Walsh is talking about his childhood, right? Rogan wanted to know whether you always knew you were going to be a conservative commentator. How did that come about? Was it just a natural thing that, you know, you just slid right into it because of how you grew up or how you've always been? And Matt Walsh talks about how his parents told him and his, I think he said five siblings, when they were kids attending public school growing up, which uh, Walsh says, you know, I, I attended public school and it's worse now than it was even when I was a kid. But because I attended it, my kids don't. <laughs> I know what it is and I know that I don't want my kids in that. But his parents, nevertheless, when he was in it, told him and his siblings that if they ever got in trouble for telling the truth at school or for doing the right thing at school, if they ever got in trouble with their teachers or principals or school administrators for doing the right thing, for telling the truth, they wouldn't be in trouble when they got home. But if they were causing trouble just to cause trouble, yes, you you will be in trouble. We will not tolerate that. You can't be, don't be taking this as a broad mandate to just do whatever you want and we'll have your back. But if you're telling the truth, you're doing what's right. And that's not well received because this is a propaganda machine as well. The public schools are. Well, then we will not be upset with you. We will have your back. We want you to tell the truth and do what's right, even if it gets you in trouble with the school. And, you know, this is it's interesting timing to come across this back and forth, this part of the uh, interview and the the podcast episode, Joe Rogan Experience, this morning, because one of my sons was just telling me last night about a conversation he recently had with a boy his age who was complaining to him. And I won't say which one of my sons and I won't say who the boy was, but he was complaining to him that he feels like he's juggling three balls between public school life, and he attends public school, uh, his home life, and his social life. Or he said love life, but then you know he, he really meant social life, I'm told. But this kid wanted to know what my son thinks about how we should respond or relate when a classmate is talking about being gay or bi or trans or, or what have you. How should we respond? And for this kid's part, attending public school and my son's part being homeschooled, this kid said that his approach, his response is to just shut down the conversation and to leave, leave the situation. I don't want to talk about this. If some classmate starts being flamboyantly, openly, flagrantly gay or or bi or trans in uh, his conversation. And my son didn't like that, right? My son says, well, no, that's I don't think that's correct. I think we have a responsibility to engage, to, to speak, right? To tell the truth, to say, I, you know, that's wrong, right? If they're telling us things that are not true, we have a responsibility to respond with the truth. If they're doing things that are not good, we have a responsibility to tell them, hey, you should not do that. That's bad, right? That's evil. That's corrupt. That's wicked. But it's curious because, it, you know, it wasn't just this, right? It, it wasn't just that this boy is talking with my boy and saying he, he feels like he's juggling these three, you know, his school life, his home life, and his social life. And it's a challenge and it's really stressful and it, it's frustrating because he says at one point to my son that he can't say anything, right? He can't say anything. My son says, well, you should say something. You should, you should tell the truth. You should contradict. You should debate the kid or, or what have you. Tell him he's wrong and why he's wrong. If He's bragging about being gay or bi or trans. And this kid says, I I can't because my parents really want me to go to this school and I don't want to get kicked out. And and this goes back again to the whole filial piety. On the one hand, it's a good and noble thing that there's this respect for parents, right? There's this deference to parents. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother does not come to a good end. But on the other hand, I think to myself, There's no excuse for the parents putting their kids in a public school scenario like is being described here where homosexuality is being promoted, celebrated, affirmed. You will get more of what you are promoting and supporting and affirming. Heterosexual marriage is denigrated and torn down and at best met with a shrug, but at worst 
uh, mocked, told, you know, that needs to wait and wait and wait and wait until, you know, you're 35, 36, have had a hysterectomy or a vasectomy and uh, <laughs> undergone a transition and a detransition and now you're sterile. I think it's unconscionable. I think there's no excuse for the parents. I, I can appreciate that the young man saying, well, I don't want to do anything that would displease my parents and they really don't want me to do or say anything that would get me kicked out of the school. But I would say, I, they're not my parents, right? <laughs> I'm free to say, uh, shame on you. Shame on you. In our day especially, with the public schools being such as they are, there is no excuse for Christian parents to send their kids to a public school without making it known that they want their son, their daughter, to embrace what is true and good regardless of the consequences. And if you can't do that, your kids shouldn't be in that school. If you can't do that, if you're not willing to do that, if you don't have the courage to do that, you need to just get your kid out. If your kid couldn't embrace what is good and what is true and still be a student, still maintain enrollment and pass his classes and survive, right, and come out on the other end, well, then why is your child there? Why, why is your son or daughter in that scenario? Because you put them there because of you. And so shame on you. I, I mean that. that. That's unconscionable. That is irresponsible. That's a dereliction of duty. But I would ask you this. Would Matt Walsh have written Johnny the Walrus or filmed What is a Woman if his parents hadn't told him they were in his corner when he was younger? Uh, the answer to my way of thinking is no. And and I think the answer to his way of thinking is also no, because it's a very relevant fact to his mind. When Joe Rogan asks him this question, Joe Rogan, the most popular, successful podcaster in the world for some time. When Joe Rogan asks Matt Walsh, how did you get into being this far right, far right wing, conservative pundit, commentator? How, how did that come to be? Matt Walsh credits his parents saying, you won't be in trouble with us if you get in trouble at school for saying what's true and doing what's right. Your teacher says something that's just absolutely false and corrupt, and you have our permission and our blessing to correct them and to say, no, that's not true. For the sake of your fellow students, for the sake of your own soul, you have our support. And if you get in trouble for that, we've got your back. Now, I don't think, even in putting that cause and effect relationship together. I don't think that the parents of this young man who is recently talking to one of my sons, I, I don't think they're thinking about that at all. I don't think they have that on their radar, actually. I don't think they care about it. If they do think about it, it's not a value, right? It's, it's not a value to them that their son would grow up to have a strength of conviction and courage of conviction like Matt Walsh does. I, I don't think. If it if it was on their radar, if it was something that they cared about, then this conversation would not be happening. But it is happening. And I, I can't come to any other conclusion. Unless you've got a different scenario, a different possibility, this is the best I've got, and I'm sticking with it. I, I think it's important that we look at this and we ask as parents, what does it profit our son or our daughter to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? That is the question that we need to be asking and if that's not a question that has occurred to us, we really have a lot of soul searching to do about our condition before the Most High God. And will he be pleased? Is he pleased with our faithfulness? Are we being faithful or are we being faithless? Are we being honorable? Are we loving and serving our children well if that doesn't even enter into our thought process when we're evaluating educational options for them or having their back, communicating to them? very adamantly that we have their back. You know, I think of when my oldest two sons started up classes at Ames, the conversation that I had with them, knowing that this is a state school, it's a community college, this is not a Christian college. Even if it were a Christian college, it wouldn't necessarily be a guarantee. But I, the kind of guarantee that I have with them going to a local community college here in the state of Colorado is that they're going to be exposed to ideas and examples and teaching and pedagogy and arguments that are antithetical to what we believe based on God's word. What God tells us about himself and about us 
and about why we're here and about where we're going and about how reality functions and works. But I told my sons, I said, you know what? If you guys pass these classes and you get good grades, it's all paid for with Colorado early college. It's all paid for. If you fail these classes, then I will be on the hook to pay the tuition. If you come across things that are not true and that are not good, and you're being required to affirm those things, support those things, endorse those things, agree with those things, parrot those things, and that's what you passing the class depends on, I don't want you to pass these classes at all costs. If we have to, we'll pay for those classes. Now, I want you to try your absolute level best and not be looking for reasons to say, ah, well, it was crazy ideology. I just didn't want to work. No, no, no. Work hard, work diligently. And if you have to, fail the class. I want you to pass, but I don't know that the powers that be want you to pass and come out with your soul intact. And I care more about you coming out with your soul intact. That's where we've got to be, right? That's where our mindset has to be. That's where our heads have got to be in order for us to be faithful as parents. I'm convinced of that. If you don't like it, well, I guess tough. Because <laughs> right here, right, right, even in these conversations that we have between us as parents, we have an opportunity to do the exact same thing. We're modeling behavior. We're modeling attitudes. We are setting an example. And as Christian parents, we're setting an example of what it means to be a Christian. You know, what is a man? What is a woman? What is a Christian, right? What is a Christian father? What is a Christian mother? And how do they communicate to their children, to their sons and their daughters in this current environment? It's a very difficult thing. I'm not denying that. It's a very stressful, concerning, worrisome thing. And yet Philippians tells us to think on these things, whatever is good, praiseworthy, commendable, excellent. Think on these things. And so to my way of thinking, it's good for my kids to do their level best, regardless whether it's recognized. To my way of thinking, it's good for my kids to come out of childhood and any kind of an educational or occupational uh, opportunity with their soul. Above all things, they must still have their soul on the other end. And so I'm counseling accordingly. And as a result, I trust the good Lord and I, I have a hope, right? I don't know what other people will do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Interestingly enough, changing gears a little bit here, and then we'll come back to the Joe Rogan business. My wife sent me a video on Instagram earlier this week, a few days ago, from an account called Scooped Feed. And the title of this short video is Birth Control Pills Make Women Want Feminine Men. So there's... an attention-grabbing headline for you. But what does it mean? Why would they say that? What are they talking about? I'm going to play the audio for this little video here for you. And then I want to touch briefly on how this relates. And then we'll come back again to uh, some additional thoughts on Joe Rogan and Matt Walsh talking about marriage. But Here you go. Here's some audio from this video, this Instagram video that my wife sent me. Take a listen. When women are at the point in the cycle when estrogen is high, there's been a lot of research indicating that women exhibiting a preference for more masculinized male faces, more masculinized male voices, the scent of testosterone. And so there's been a lot of research that sort of links estradiol to testosterone preference. So more recently, researchers have begun to explore the idea that women who are on hormonal birth control, given that it keeps your own estradiol levels very low, that this might be associated with a decreased preference for masculinity. There's been research showing that women who are on hormonal birth control prefer a less masculinized male face relative to what's preferred by the exact same women when they are naturally cycling. The men who were chosen by women when they were on hormonal birth control, those faces were seen as being less masculine and also sort of scored lower in terms of masculinity using the objective measures relative to the faces of men who were chosen by naturally cycling women. Okay, so here's where we get... <laughs> uh, into trouble perhaps with some people. I, I don't know. There's a possibility of uh, giving offense or people being uh, unsettled or uncomfortable with this topic. And I promise I'm not going to get too explicit, but I do think 
this relates. I think that the legalization of contraceptions, uh, birth control pills in particular, which trick the woman's body into a, a false sense, right? The, the normal cycles that a woman's body goes through as far as hormones are concerned, which make pregnancy possible, that's the premise of birth control, right? Hormonal birth control is about tricking your body into thinking it's not time to get pregnant, right? And so what you have over the past several decades is a, a kind of experiment on a massive scale where a few things have come together. One has been mass media. The sexual revolution, I don't think would have been possible if not for the radio and TV. And now the internet uh, as well affirms a kind of homogenizing of certain cultural attitudes. You can be in your car driving around by yourself or with uh, you know a love interest listening to certain music that has certain values and certain uh, priorities, certain messages, certain sentiments communicated that your priest, your pastor, your neighbor, your auntie, your grandmother, your mother, you know, they're not necessarily going to have some control over in the way that they would have in generations past. And now you're influenced by that and you're influenced by the news and you're influenced by the debates that are able to be had over the airwaves. And the music does uh, a kind of a, a Pied Piper number on our social norms from the advent of radio and television and now the internet, we have a loosening of sexual morals that happens in tandem with arguments coming from the likes of the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, regarding the empowerment of women and the abolition of marriage, really. She was for the abolition of marriage by promoting open sexuality, free love, and uh, ultimately even uh, homosexuality. Let's normalize all of that as a way of not, you know, just, hey, we, it, didn't, it didn't occur to us that doing so will abolish marriage or, or undermine marriage. No, no, that was the point because marriage is repressive and uh, constricting and it interferes with liberation, right? A liberated woman is not going to be, uh, you know, dependent on any kind of a man. Uh, any husband, father, family, culture that would put expectations on her and demand certain things from her or expect or require certain things from her. So Margaret Sanger and a lot of intellectuals that she hobnobbed with in the early 20th century carried a torch forward from the Enlightenment that was liberal and increasingly we describe as leftist. It goes farther and farther along the number line, along the spectrum, towards sterility, uh, actually. And, and so there's a shelf life, right? It might be a long shelf life in terms of our lifespan, but in the grand scheme of things, civilizationally, it, there is a shelf life that is not forever, in which these ideas can only sustain future populations for so long before they die out. They go extinct because they're not reproducing, because this is not a fertile soil in which to raise future generations. That's the whole point of birth control. That's the whole point of abortion. That's the whole point of sterilization and getting a vasectomy, getting a hysterectomy. That's the whole point of refusing to get married, settle down and have a family and raise a family like Matt Walsh was talking about with Joe Rogan. But it's curious when it comes to women who are going to want to get married anyways, but they don't want to get pregnant just yet, which Joe Rogan talks about quite a lot. Birth control is a uh, go-to and it's been normalized. It was scandalous at first and then it was legalized because the Supreme Court and our elected representatives listened to bad arguments from a legal standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, from a theological standpoint. They listened to bad arguments about what we should be free to do without any kind of interference, objection, constraint from the government. 
And so birth control was legalized. A lot of women got on the pill. It was of a piece with the sexual revolution. In fact, it made the sexual revolution possible. There were limiting factors prior to birth control from a practical standpoint that a woman is not going to just be sleeping around with a whole lot of men getting pregnant by all of them forever, indefinitely. At a certain point, she's going to be too tired and her house too full of children and and no father sticking around because that wasn't the arrangement. That wasn't the agreement that he was going to stick around for life. If that had been the agreement, they would have gotten married on the front end and this would be a totally different scenario. He'd be providing for and protecting her and those children, raising those children, leading that family. But the sexual revolution is the antithesis of that and not accidentally, on purpose, and, and, on, and deliberately, committedly, at, at a very foundational root level in our psychology. A lot of the folks who went the birth control option and relied on that as they were having you know open um, relationships, one after another after another, at a certain point did find the one. Right, and, and so we have this language that is newfangled, and it's not to be assumed that you could just extrapolate it backward. Like this is the way it's always been. It hasn't. It hasn't. It's been for, for decades now in American culture and Western culture the status quo. And our memory is not long enough. Mine at thirty six. Matt Walsh's at thirty six is not long enough to remember a time before this. But that's where you get books and you read books. You know better and you talk with older generations and you know better. But it was not always assumed that men and women are looking for their soulmate and they're just going to try one partner after another after another until they find the person that they're most emotionally drawn to or they are most attracted to or they get along with the best or they're the most likely to be successful with. And yet that's what has happened. And that's, I'm convinced, why the divorce rate has been so high. The divorce rate has been so high because a lot of folks who fundamentally at their root weren't committed to monogamy had their fun, then they got settled down, but then they're really not still settled down, right? At a certain point, they change their mind that this person is the one and they give up. And they give up in lots of active and passive ways. And then the marriage breaks down and then they get a divorce. But in the meantime, birth control, if this is correct, right? If this video that I just played for you, the audio from, if it's correct, when those women who were on the pill were fooling around or settling on this or that mate that they had these strong feelings for, when, when these women got off of the pill, they maybe had a very different perspective on the men they had chosen to be mates with regards to how attractive they found them now. If they selected them and thought they were so attractive in part because they were on the birth control pill, but part of the effect of the birth control pill on their psychology and on their hormones and on their response to this or that man, uh, you know, relative all others, if their response was to be more attracted to men who were less masculine and more feminine, then they stopped taking birth control and found that they weren't attracted to the man that they married. Well, then that also would feed into, in addition to other things, at a very, again, root level, a undermining of what's necessary for a healthy marriage. And so I think that contributes. I think it contributes to the divorce rate. I think it contributes to failed marriages and unhappy marriages that you had a lot of young women picking a mate, picking a husband to finally settle down with, then getting off birth control when they were ready to self-actualize and having children, and then finding that they don't find them as attractive when their body is going through its normal cycles. And so what do you do with that, right? And, and also, if we're selecting uh, future generations' traits in some sense, through who we decide to marry. And, and that's established. That's well known. There are limits to how much we should assume and extrapolate from selective breeding of human beings. But it's known that if his family 
has uh, a genetic predisposition to certain uh, illnesses or conditions, your children are at an increased risk of also inheriting the genes that will cause that illness. If she has, you know, really tall people in her family who have been athletic for a long, long time, for generations, they've been very athletic. They've been great soldiers and leaders of men. Well, your children, the children that come from the marriage, uh, have an increased chance of winning the lottery with getting some of those tall genes, having a higher potential. What they do with it, that's another question, but they have a higher potential for being tall. Well, what happens when you have a large percentage of women selecting a mate under the influence of birth control who is less masculine, who has less testosterone, then maybe they they do have children. They have fewer children. And I think that's also related to why they have fewer children. Not just that the birth control messes with the woman's uh, cycles and she's put it off until she's not as uh, young and, and capable of having children from an energy standpoint, but also because he's less masculine and he's less interested in having children by virtue of being less masculine. And he's also less attractive to her when she stops taking birth control because he's less masculine. At, at, at the point in her cycle where she's going to be able to get pregnant, he's less attractive. So they are at a lower uh, chance there as well. But then also, too, let's say they have children anyways, right? They have children. And he's less masculine. And you have three or four generations at this point since the legalization of birth control, which are being born at a much higher rate to couples where the men are less masculine. What effect is that having as well? I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question, but surely it has to have some effect if this is correct, if this is true, that birth control pills make women want less masculine men. I wouldn't say necessarily feminine men, but I would say less masculine men. What you will get is generations coming up who are less and less masculine until you just cut it off and you say, all right, no more, no more birth control. Enough. And not only will you get more babies because there's less stopping babies, the Swiss cheese model of prevention, you're eliminating one slice of Swiss cheese if you eliminate birth control. But there's also the factor of the psychology of the male-female dynamic of which men who are more likely to want to have children and who a woman who's fertile is more likely to want to have children with, you will get more children and you will probably get more masculine male offspring as a result. And you will have more successful marriages. I'm, I'm confident that that is how this works together from a dynamic standpoint. Going back to Joe Rogan for a moment, Joe Rogan says relationships in our society are in a bad condition. And he says it's not because of gay marriage. And I actually agree. I agree it's not because of gay marriage, but gay marriage is a continuation of the bad condition that relationships are in. It's the next logical progression, you know, aside from young people just not getting married at all and being celibate and asexual, gay marriage is one of the outcomes of high divorce rates, which is, you know, as a factor in the psychology of young people who grew up seeing their parents get divorced, uh, you know, that, that high divorce rate is a result of the sexual revolution and the birth control pill and abortion. And Rogan, for his part, he says at one point, he doesn't see how gay marriage harms heterosexual married couples. And I would say that is short-sighted. Insofar as society will get more of what it affirms and celebrates, we will get fewer marriages to the extent that cultural support for marriage decreases. If we're celebrating gay marriage, we will get more gay marriage. If we say gay marriage is illegitimate, we will get less gay marriage. But even just it being a debate gives it legitimacy. It being legalized gives it legitimacy. It being defended gives it legitimacy. All of these are amplifiers that make it increasingly 
likely that you will get more gay marriage. Also, there's an opportunity cost. The more that society is wanting to not value heterosexual marriage more than gay marriage, the less society will be encouraging heterosexual marriage and affirming it and supporting it and getting more of it. So you will get less heterosexual marriage the more that you affirm gay marriage as every bit as legitimate, as there being no distinction. But Rogan also, similarly, at least he's consistent, he doesn't see why gay or lesbian couples shouldn't be allowed to adopt. Who's hurt, right? Who does that hurt if a gay couple or a lesbian couple want to adopt a kid and and raise a kid together? And they're not, obviously, a a heterosexual couple. Who, Who cares, right? What's it to you? Rogan's blind spot in that is... The relational and developmental malnourishment, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, that Walsh actually, he brings up, that speaks to the irreplaceable contributions, invaluable contributions, priceless contributions that a father makes in the rearing of children, that a mother makes in the rearing of children by virtue of the father being masculine, the mother being feminine. Walsh brings it up and Rogan doesn't carry that point any further. I don't know why he doesn't pull on that thread, except that it's a losing premise for his position. He doesn't want to take that position for all the same reasons that, for instance, this young guy that was just talking with my son is afraid to speak up in the public schools because he'll get expelled. Rogan knows that that would damage his brand. He would be over. He'd be canceled. Sponsorships, Spotify, his audience, they would be done with him, or at least that's what he's convinced of. And that's unfortunate, but, but Walsh is right, right? Walsh is right that this hurts the child. It also hurts society and a radical libertarian attitude. Won't see that, won't recognize that, won't acknowledge that, but it's the case regardless. It doesn't matter if you, you, you can deny it all you want. It still is part of what we are seeing play out and express itself in the trends, in the statistics, in the anecdotal evidence of despair and suicide and self-harm and substance abuse. Rogan also doesn't understand why the point and purpose of marriage should be procreation. He objects to that. seems like things get tense when Walsh and Rogan are going back and forth about the point of marriage to be fruitful. Rogan does recognize, however, interestingly enough, he does recognize we are devaluing marriages of couples who don't have children if we say the point of marriage is to have children. And and hear what I'm saying, please. I'm not saying we shouldn't allow couples where, you know, let's say the man has had some kind of a tragic accident. He can't have children. The woman has had some kind of a terrible accident. She can't have children. I'm not saying we shouldn't allow them to marry. I think we've got an example in Abraham and Sarah of a couple that is infertile and yet they have a totally legitimate marriage. I mean, they make dumb boneheaded decisions, but you don't have to be fertile or infertile to uh, have that be the case. All you have to be is a human being. In the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the New Testament, they're also infertile, very similar situation. They don't believe they will ever have children. They're advanced in age. They're old. One or the other of them is incapable until God supernaturally makes it possible for them to have children. And then John the Baptist is born. So I'm not saying couples who are infertile shouldn't be allowed to get married or that we shouldn't celebrate them, but you have to make value judgments in order to get more of a good thing. To refuse to make value judgments is to make a value judgment that the highest good you can conceive of is everyone being equal. Let's radically redistribute not just wealth, but social standing, affirmation. Well, in that case, it's the book of Judges. Everybody's just going to do what's right in their own eyes. And also, civilization will crumble. That cannot be sustained. That is an infertile, sterile worldview, actually, definitionally. Al Mohler was talking about this on the briefing this past week. It is definitionally a sterile worldview. It may last what feels like a long time for our lifespan, but in the long run, it can't be sustained. It literally can't because you all of the people who think that way are not going to be reproducing and passing their ideas down to the next generation unless they can hijack your kids, which is the point of the public schools after all. But that's a choice that we make as parents to give our kids to the public schools 
where the godless and the sterile worldview proponents are going to train them up in the way that they should not go. But it, it is curious. It's curious to me. Rogan recognizes immediately, instinctively, the point that Walsh is trying to make about gay marriage and homosexual couples adopting. He recognizes it instinctively, immediately, without any trouble whatsoever, when it comes to comparing infertile couples or couples that just decide they don't want to get married. You know, the way Rogan characterizes it is, hey, I'll get fixed. You get your tube tubes tied. We'll travel the world. We'll self-actualize. We don't need to have kids and slow us down. But if you say the point of marriage is to produce godly offspring, which is actually what the Bible says, that's what Walsh should have replied with. But he's a Catholic, and so the authority that is most visible, most emphasized, is the authority of the church, not first and foremost, the authority of God's word, God himself, first and foremost, directly, like it would be for me as a Protestant. God says the point of the man and the woman coming together and a portion of the spirit between them was to produce godly offspring. That is what the one God desired in the institution of marriage. Malachi speaks to this. Therefore, let no one be unfaithful or faithless to the wife of his youth. Have children. Have kids. But if you say that, as soon as you say that, then the folks who say they are not for participation trophies all of a sudden want participation trophies for marriage. And that's not possible. It's not possible. I don't see how anyone could, unless they want to, miss the inverse point that Walsh is making as being of a piece with what Rogan picks up on. Rogan doesn't like that we would say a married couple who settles down and has a bunch of kids and raises those those kids is to be honored more than a couple that has themselves sterilized and then globe trots or pursues their careers. He doesn't want to hear that. He would describe that as devaluing, right? You're devaluing the marriages of couples. Well, then if you believe that, the inverse has to be true as well. If the correlation here exists in these dynamics, it works in both directions. And if it doesn't work in both directions, then it doesn't work in either. It's stubborn wish casting to insist on the correlation being causation when that means we get what we want, but then denying it, avoiding it stubbornly, refusing to see it, refusing to acknowledge it, if it means we don't get what we want sometimes. We can't deny the causal dynamic when it's inconvenient and only insist on it stubbornly when it suits our purposes. If that's what we're doing, the truth is not what we want most of all. What we want is pleasure. Rogan's questions, interestingly, keep coming back again and again. But what if they want this? But what if they don't want that? Who are you to say? Right? And Walsh, for his part, I think he's a little bit confused at several points because he's like, I, I'm not suggesting you make it illegal for couples to not have children. I'm not saying you should be legally required to have children or what, right? Like China's looking at doing that now with their demographic problems as the result of the one-child policy. China's looking at threatening you will have children or else or we'll make you have children. How are you going to do that? I hate to think. But Rogan's questions are all about what we want, right? What do we want? What if we want to not have children? What if we want to get married to someone of the same gender or sex? What if we want to affirm any and all possibilities here? But that is of a piece. It's of a piece with the transgender movement. It's of a piece with teen suicide. It's of a piece with the trans kids. You can't separate these things out and just take what you want and leave what you don't want. If you do that, well, then the truth is not in you. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. In fact, we're calling God a liar because he says we are sinful. So what needs to happen actually in all of this again and again and again, first and foremost, we need to get right with our maker. And it's okay for you to want the blessings that are downstream of that. In fact, that's part of the reason why God disciplines us with natural consequences, because it is a corrective. And that's part of why he promises us blessings if we are faithful and obedient. We need to get right with our maker. We need to be encouraging our young people to get married. We need to be encouraging our young married couples to have children. It wouldn't break my heart at all if abortion and birth control were completely outlawed. Birth control pills, I'm not saying 
any and all ways that somebody might try and forestall, delay having children. There are lots of legitimate reasons why you might be reluctant if you can help it, but there are limits. We've got to be thinking more holistically here about what we risk and not short-sighted. If we want to be short-sighted, well, we might just have a sterile worldview. And in that case, I'm under no obligation to say that sterile is every bit as legitimate as fertile. In fact, as a Christian, I have a responsibility to point you to what God says. We should obey God rather than men. And we can't just ask, what do I want? What does my wife want? What does society want? What does my school want? What does my place of business want? What does my work want? What does my neighborhood want? No, no. What does God want? What does God want? That should be the first question. If that's not our first question, then I dare say we are not obeying the first and greatest commandment. There's no way we could be because we don't love God if we're not asking that question, what does God want? On the other hand, and this is the last thing and I got to run. We've got church to get to. If our question is, what does God want? If we're going to his word, if we are searching the scriptures diligently, being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, if our churches are reflecting that, if our homes are reflecting that, if our relationships with one another are reflecting that, if that is shaping and informing the kinds of decisions that we make, well then, there's a blessing. And tell the righteous it will go well with them. But like I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. If you've got some thoughts on any and all of this, anything you think I'm forgetting, leaving out, failing to mention, failing to factor into my considerations, do let me know. Please do, because I do want to improve my arguments, make them better and better. I know I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. There are three things that are too wonderful for me and four that I don't understand, uh, at least. There's probably far more besides, but uh, there's at least, at least three or four. (laughs) So uh, next episode, episode 500, we'll be talking through the last 100 episodes. So stay tuned for that. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet, and uh, you'll... Get a quick recap from me in our next episode on kind of what I've learned, what we've learned, what we've gone through. If you haven't listened to the last hundred episodes, you can definitely go back and do that. But uh, I'll give you maybe an idea of where you could start if you haven't caught all hundred of those episodes. Uh, Maybe some highlights that you might want to check out. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.